If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, Senate Republicans vote to acquit the president, except for one that is, Mitt Romney opts for principle over partisanship. Rana Ambrose joins us to discuss her efforts to ensure the Canadian judges understand the country's sexual assault laws. Also, why Canada's laws around sex work put women in danger and how we can fix those laws. Plus, a new study from the Montreal Economic Institute on the unintended consequences of trying to keep drug prices down. That's that. The votes on the two articles of impeachment are complete. It was 52-48 to acquit on Article 153-47 on Article 2. You need a two-thirds majority vote in the Senate, guilty vote, to remove a president, which was always unlikely. But that marks the end of this. Uh, The Republicans uh, in the Senate who did not want to hear from witnesses, who wanted this to be over as quickly as possible, I guess they got their wish. All of them but one, Utah Senator Mitt Romney. And it wasn't clear how he was going to vote, which way he was going to go. Uh, But Mitt Romney stood today as a man of principle, stood today and did the right thing, stood today and made history as the first senator to vote for impeachment against a president from his own party. I think history will look favorably upon Mitt Romney and what he did today, and more to the point, what he said. And it was an impressive speech from the senator about his role, his responsibility, his duty, his obligation, and the facts of the case. I want to play for you what Senator Mitt Romney had to say, because I do think it is a speech for the ages. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. The House managers presented evidence supporting their case, and the White House counsel disputed that case. In addition, the president's team presented three defenses. First, that there could be no impeachment without a statutory crime. Second, that the Bidens can conduct justified the president's actions, and third, that the judgment of the president's actions should be left to the voters. Let me first address those three defenses. The historic meaning of the words high crimes and misdemeanors, the writings of the founders, and my own reasoned judgment convince me that a president can indeed commit acts against the public trust that are so egregious that while they are not statutory crimes, they would demand removal from office. To maintain that the lack of a codified and comprehensive list of all the outrageous acts that a president might conceivably commit renders Congress powerless to remove such a president defies reason. 
president's counsel also notes that Vice President Biden appeared to have a conflict of interest when he undertook an effort to remove the Ukrainian prosecutor general. If he knew of the exorbitant compensation his son was receiving from a company actually under investigation, the vice president should have recused himself. While ignoring a conflict of interest is not a crime, it is surely very wrong. With regards to Hunter Biden, taking excessive advantage of his father's name is unsavory, but also not a crime. Given that in neither the case of the father nor the son was any evidence presented by the president's counsel that a crime had been committed, the president's insistence that they be investigated by the Ukrainians is hard to explain other than as a political pursuit. There's no question in my mind that were their names not Biden, the president would never have done what he did. The defense argues that the Senate should leave the impeachment decision to the voters. While that logic is appealing to our democratic instincts, it is inconsistent with the Constitution's requirement that the Senate, not the voters, try the president. Hamilton explained that the founders' decision to invest senators with this obligation rather than leave it to the voters was intended to minimize, to the extent possible, the partisan sentiments of the public at large. So the verdict is ours to render under our Constitution. The people will judge us for how well and faithfully we fulfill our duty. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did. The president asked a foreign government to investigate his political rival. The president withheld vital military funds from that government to press it to do so. The president delayed funds for an American ally at war with Russian invaders. The president's purpose was personal and political. Accordingly, the president is guilty of an appalling abuse of public trust. What he did was not perfect. No, it was a flagrant assault on our electoral rights, our national security, and our fundamental values. Corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can imagine. In the last several weeks, I've received numerous calls and texts. Many demanded in their words that I stand with the team. I can assure you that that thought has been very much on my mind. You see, I support a great deal of what the president has done. I voted with him 80% of the time. But my promise before God to apply impartial justice required that I put my personal feelings and political biases aside. Were I to ignore the evidence that has been presented and disregard what I believe my oath and the Constitution demands of me for the sake of a partisan end, it would, I fear, expose my character to history's rebuke and the censure of my own conscience. I'm aware that there are people in my party and in my state who will strenu strenuously disapprove of my decision. And in some quarters, I will be vehemently denounced. I'm sure to hear abuse from the president and his supporters. 
Does anyone seriously believe that I would consent to these consequences other than from an inescapable conviction that my oath before God demanded it of me? I sought to, hear, sought to hear testimony from John Bolton, not only because I believed he could add context to the charges, but also because I hoped that what he might say could raise reasonable doubt and thus remove from me the awful obligation to vote for impeachment. Like each member of this deliberative body, I love our country. I believe that our Constitution was inspired by providence. I'm convinced that freedom itself is dependent on the strength and vitality of our national character. As it is with each senator, my vote is an act of conviction. We've come to different conclusions, fellow senators, but I trust we have all followed the dictates of our conscience. I acknowledge that my verdict will not remove the president from office. The results of this Senate court will in fact be appealed to a higher court, the judgment of the American people. Voters will make the final decision, just as the president's lawyers have implored. My vote will likely be in the minority in the Senate. But irrespective of these things, with my vote, I will tell my children and their children that I did my duty to the best of my ability, believing that my country expected it of me. I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. They will note merely that I was among the senators who determined that what the president did was wrong, grievously wrong. We are all footnotes at best in the annals of history, but in the most powerful nation on earth, the nation conceived in liberty and justice, that distinction is enough for any citizen. Thank you, Mr. President. I yield the floor. There was. So that was the moment today, Mitt Romney uh, explaining in great detail his thought process, his duty, his obligation, and how he came to vote guilty on one of the two charges, on the abuse of power charge. Because the evidence is so overwhelming, how could he not? How could he look the other way? How could he ignore that oath he made and swore an oath to God, which, as he said, means something to him? So maybe he's, he's finished now in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is very much now the party of Trump. It is, as they say, cult 45. So if you're going to try to argue that Mitt Romney is just trying to be the president, no, I don't think he'll ever be the president. But he can hold his head high. He can sleep well at night. He stood on principle. And it's good to know that there are still in the Republican Party people of principle. Let's get this out of the way. Uh, Ron Ambrose is not running for the conservative leadership. I know there were a lot of people who were hoping that she would. I think she would have made a great leader. Uh, clearly, it was a difficult decision for her, uh, but that decision has been made. Uh, so just to, just to get that out there uh, as we get set to, uh, to chat with her here. But I want to focus on an issue that she has been really, really passionate about for a few years now and really active on. Back when she was still in Parliament back in 2017, she brought this forward as a private member's bill. Private member's bill that passed unanimously, but didn't get over the finish line. The issue at hand here, and, and it's, it's been driven home by some unfortunate court cases, and new trials having to be ordered after judges screwed up. 
the fact that there are judges in Canada that don't have a proper grasp of sexual assault law. So imagine a judge hearing a case involving sexual assault and not having the right understanding of the law, not being properly educated on sexual assault law in Canada. That's really problematic, to say the least. So what this private member's bill proposed to do was to ensure that judges were properly trained. So, as mentioned, uh, that, that bill ended up stalling in the Senate. Ron Ambrose, of course, has uh, since left Parliament. Uh, but she didn't give up the fight. And uh, even outside of politics, she's been pushing for change on this front. And so it was interesting to see today, Ron Ambrose standing alongside uh, Liberal Justice Minister David Lametti as the announcement was made that this bill was going to come back, was going to come back as a government bill. And hopefully it'll get uh, over the finish line this time. And there appears to be all-party support for this, which is encouraging. So joining us to talk more about this announcement today, why she's so passionate about this issue, and why we have this problem in Canada, very pleased to welcome to the program former Edmonton MP, former Cabinet Minister, former Interim Conservative Leader, former Opposition Leader, Rana Ambrose. Ms. Ambrose, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Now, Bill C-337 had already passed the House. Now, obviously, the government's going to take another go at this, but but what has happened in the interim, first of all? Sure. Well, it's been three years. We've been, I myself and many other people have been working on this bill to mandate that judges in our system, in our courts, have sexual assault law training. Uh, It was unanimously supported in the House of Commons when I introduced it as leader of the Conservative Party. And in fact, it was co-sponsored by the NDP leader then, Thomas Mulcair, supported by Justin Trudeau. Um, I could go on and on. It, it was overwhelmingly supported by the House of Commons and the elected members of Parliament. It went to the Senate. Um, they didn't think it was something they needed to look at. So it sat there for a long time. We finally, you know, I started to advocate for it. Uh, and they finally started to look at it. And then by then it was just uh, too late. There were some politics involved, as usual. Yeah. So today is very good news because the government has decided to reintroduce my bill as a piece of government legislation, which is different than a private member's bill. Uh, It needs to be dealt with in uh, a more expeditious manner. It needs to be dealt with by the Senate immediately because it's government business. So they, you know, it won't be able to be held up by by uh, politics. I'll put it that way. So it's, it's good news. Well, it is. And I mean, some issues should transcend politics. I mean, this seems like one of them. Uh, So how did this come about? Did they reach out to you? I mean, had you been pressing them on this or or how did this uh, how did we get to this point today? Sure. Well, I've been really active in my post political career advocating on this issue and many other issues that affect women. But I actually started to advocate uh, when I saw that the bill wasn't going to pass the Senate to advocate that all parties put this in their election platform. And they did, which was wonderful. Andrew Scheer put it in his election platform. Justin Trudeau did, Elizabeth May, and Jagmeet Singh. So in my, you know, in my view, I knew that whoever got elected, of course, I hoped that it would be the Conservatives, mm-hmm. that this would be reintroduced. And that's what happens. It happens to be the Liberals that were. But I have every confidence, no matter who would have won, this would have moved ahead. So you're right. It's not a partisan issue. This is about supporting victims of sexual assault across this country that need to have a lot more confidence in our court system uh, and ensuring that the people that are the most senior people, which are our judges, are competent in the law when they're presiding over these kinds of cases. 
Right. And I mean, that, that's what's so concerning about this. I mean, this is certainly good news today. But I mean, the fact that we need something like this at all is is rather alarming that the judges don't understand the law. That that seems like a big problem. Why? Why is there a need for this? You know, it's 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 actually unsettling because, you know, one in three women will experience some kind of sexual assault or violence in their life, but only one in 10 report it. And when you drill down and you ask questions, they say it's because they don't trust the system especially the court system. And it only takes one high-profile case of, you know, a judge making an error or saying something inappropriate in a courtroom to really shatter the confidence that women have in, in the institution of our courts. So that's what this is about, is about building that confidence back up. And the reality is, it's still happening. It's shocking to imagine that someone who should know is presiding over a case of sexual assault but doesn't actually know sexual assault law in the way that they should. And just... Last year, the Supreme Court overturned two cases where judges made errors. In Alberta, actually, the appeal court has overturned four cases where judges made errors in law. Judges should not be making errors in law, especially in areas like sexual assault, where it has such a huge ramification on the victim who has to then go back through the court system again. Many of them just say, forget it. I'm not going through this again because it's just too much. And they give up. So, no, there's work to do here in training and education. It's just a basic tenet of, of anyone like you and I who work in whatever field we work in. So all we're asking is that all judges undertake meaningful, comprehensive sexual assault law training so that when a victim goes into a courtroom, she or he knows that the person providing over their case is completely competent and knowledgeable in this area of law. Yeah. And it was, I mean, one of the stories today covering the announcement, uh, the reporter went back just over the last couple of months, there were at least three sexual assault cases that she found where a new trial was ordered because a judge, a superior court judge made a mistake. So this, this seems to happen a lot. It does. And, and part of, you know, part of this bill moving forward over the last three years has really made people pay attention. And we're seeing more reporters in courtrooms paying attention and publishing these kinds of stories. But for all the court proceedings that happen where there is no reporter in the room and no one really listening in for these kinds of issues, it, it's happening. And once is enough. And, and I just think if you're the, a leader in any field, but particularly a leader in the justice system, which is what our judges are, and the majority of them are doing a great job, you, know, you need to be the person that knows the most. And you must have the trust of people that walk into your courtroom and we just can't have a situation where judges are presiding over cases and allowing language that's not supposed to be used in a courtroom, uh, making, uh, making errors in judgment around issues as simple as consent. I mean, these are issues that are in law. I mean, they should know these issues. And yet we're having cases overturned because judges made errors around issues around consent. So it just shouldn't be happening. Women, 95% of women that are sexually assaulted stay silent. And that's, unacceptable these are women who and men who if they go through this horrific experience and they don't end up going to court the other thing they miss out on is support and potentially getting counseling you know these are really difficult issues to go through and we want people to be able to come forward and not only seek justice but seek support Look, I mean, there, there are a lot of judges in Canada, and obviously there are judges who do understand all of these issues. So how, how is this going to work in practice then once this law has passed? You know, which judges are going to undergo this and, and who's going to be responsible for that? 
Sure. There's there's a body named the Judicial Council that's responsible for putting together the training. This bill mandates what kind of training they have to undertake. It also mandates that they have to report to Parliament about how many judges across the country are taking the training, what it looks like. They also have to, judges from now on, once this bill passes, will have to put in writing the reasons why someone is guilty or someone has been acquitted. That forces them to put on paper uh, their rationale and their reasoning for their rulings, which is also really important for these kinds of cases. In fact, it's actually one of the things that's most important for victims is to actually see the ruling in writing and get a copy of it, which is not always the case right now. And, and also, the, the bill will mandate that anyone who wants to become a judge and be appointed as a judge will have to commit to taking comprehensive training in sexual assault law. Uh, the other thing you should know, Rob, is that a lot of these cases are fall under provincial jurisdiction. And not all provinces are doing this either. PI, since we've been advocating this bill, PI has introduced their own bill. Scott Moe has moved forward with this, which is wonderful to see in Saskatchewan. You know, I'm going to work, I continue to work with uh, Alberta, and, I'm, and I know they're interested in moving ahead with a bill like this and making sure that the judges have the right training. I've worked with Ontario, Quebec, so I'm going to continue to advocate until we see this kind of training across across the country. Now, there is a government support for this. Uh, there appears to be all-party support for this. But there, there's still kind of an urgency to this, isn't there, to make sure that this can, can get passed before, before summer, I guess. Well, I mean, as long as the government is in power, there's an opportunity to pass this bill. Uh, it'll be up to parliamentarians to decide how quickly, what process, what it needs to go through to get through. It has been through the Senate and Parliament once already. It's been to committee both in the House. So, you know, ideally they could move this quickly, but really it's up to them. And I respect their process and their decision on how this will move forward. Well, we'll keep a close eye on it, but certainly a significant day today. Uh, Ron Ambrose, congrats to you on, on your work on this. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for your support on this, on this issue. All right, there you go. Ron Ambrose, uh, former cabinet minister, former interim conservative leader, former opposition leader, uh, former <laughs> possible conservative leadership candidate. Um, anyway, so yeah, th- again, this is something she's really worked hard on for some time and a uh, big, big reason why things are changing. Member for Peace River Westlock. Um, I would just respond to that by asking the honourable member across the way um, if it's a uh, area of work that she has considered and uh, if that is an appropriate... so that, that was the moment in the House of Commons yesterday where a uh, conversation around Canada's uh, laws pertaining to sex work really went off the rails. Uh, Conservative MP uh, Arnold Veerson asking New Democrat MP Laurel Collins if she herself had considered that line of work, a uh, comment uh, he later apologized for. But look, there's good reason for our elected politicians to be discussing these laws and whether the laws we have currently in Canada are putting women in danger, more danger than, than already is there in the sex trade. And now this all stems from that horrific case uh, in Quebec recently. We've talked about it, where a man who was convicted of the brutal murder of his ex-girlfriend, paroled after 15 years, and his parole workers are trying to manage uh, his release, his relationships with women, he was allowed to 
make arrangements with sex workers, that this was uh, signed off by his parole workers because they felt his needs needed to be looked after. And obviously, that was a, a very dangerous and reckless decision. And as a result, a 22-year-old woman is dead. Now, there's some very valid questions, I think, that arise from that. For example, if somebody working in the sex trade is able to hire a bodyguard, that makes it much less likely that they're going to end up the victim of violence, like this woman did. But under our laws, hiring a bodyguard would be illegal. That's considered living off the avails of prostitution. We have what's known as the Nordic model. Uh, and was brought in by the conservative government, where our attempt was to criminalize the demand in order to try to make the demand go away. I think given the fact that the sex trade has been with us as long almost as, as hum- humans have been around, suggests that that demand isn't going anywhere. What it does, though, is it makes the trade more dangerous. And it is time, I think, that we revisit all of this. Joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sandra Wesley, Executive Director, uh, Executive Director of the group Stella, a Montreal-based organization, works with uh, women, uh, advocates for women in the sex trade. Sandra, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. I just want to add that we're an organization by and for sex workers, meaning that we are ourselves sex workers, not simply helping um, sex workers. All right, yeah, important to clarify. Okay, yeah. so uh, your, your thoughts on, on you know, what transpired in, in the House of Commons this week and you know everything that, that's come to light over the past uh, couple of weeks here? Um, well, what happened yesterday in the House of Commons was um, obviously very theatrical and um, insulting, I think, to all women, but especially to sex workers, because it, it puts us in a position um, where some of the country is more offended at um, the idea of insulting a non-sex worker by calling her a sex worker or a potential sex worker, um, as opposed to the inherent disdain of women in that comment and the inherent a contempt for actual sex workers. Um, so it's hard to untangle the outrage over this comment, but what's for sure uh, is that that MP um, was being very hostile uh, towards sex workers and that the level of contempt that he showed um, is the same level of contempt that Marilyn Levesque had to live with every day and that we all have to live with um, as sex workers. And until we address that and fundamentally, um, to say it plainly, stop hating sex workers, um, then it, we're going to continue to see the, this amount of violence against us yeah i mean clearly there's there's a moralistic um perspective he's trying to advance that you know that women don't choose to be in the sex trade and therefore shouldn't be in the sex trade which i I mean in a way it kind of misses the point the fact is that there, there are women in the sex trade and and they are facing very dangerous situations i mean it it just seems like a way of avoiding that important conversation uh, yeah, th- these types of conversations that focus on whether or not we choose to do sex work um, are, are completely missing the point uh, because those of us who are the most in need of decriminalization, the most in need of our rights being protected, are those of us who experience the most violence, who are in the most precarious situations and have the, 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 the least amount of choices available to us. So for us, it's not a relevant discussion. Um, the same way that we don't talk about choice when it comes to any other job, we just accept that people have to work um, and that we want to 
protect workers. It's a decision we've made as a, as a society a long time ago um, that we wanted to protect our workers and make sure that everyone had basic um, living conditions and working conditions and everyone had protections under the charter. Well, it's time to include sex workers in that project. Now, the, the laws we have on the books, which, as I say, are more or less uh, you know, described as the Nordic model, but that, that goes back to the uh, conservative government under Stephen mm-hmm. Harper. The, the liberals at the time were fairly critical of that approach, and yet they, they've done nothing to address these laws. Why, why has nothing changed over the last four or five years? Um, well, at this point, most parties have a position that are that, that is in favor of decriminalization, but nothing moves. Um, there are many reasons, but primarily because uh, a lot of people sense that this is a controversial topic, um, and politically they feel that it's not super convenient to move ahead on decriminalization. Um, from our perspective, as sex workers, we feel that we're seen more as a theoretical concept than as real women, and people get into really heated debates about us without ever listening to us. Um, So at this point, we feel that decriminalization is inevitable. It has to happen at some point. It's a bit like in the 90s when we talked about gay marriage. We know it was going to happen. It just takes uh, at some point that the political calculations of the government uh, come down to the conclusion that it's beneficial um, to decriminalize sex work. Um, And in all of this conversation, what's really missing is the, the actual reason why we need decriminalization, which is about our safety, which is about saving our lives. And I think we're at the point right now in Canada where most Canadians know that this is wrong. Most Canadians can see what happened to Marilène and what happened to countless other women and and know that there is something fundamentally wrong with a society that tolerates that kind of violence against women. Uh, It's just that it's really hard to be heard and to properly explain to the public why we as sex workers are asking for decriminalization, why that's the best model. Um, But that's what we need to do. And I think Canadians are ready at this point for decriminalization. And, you know, maybe this is going to be what's going to, to, to force the government to move ahead. If Canadians mm-hmm. um, express that outrage and demand change, then that's how then that's how that can happen. Yeah, and look, I mean, there, there are certainly people that need to be held accountable for what happened to, to Marilyn Levesque. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. you know, right? And, and certainly, I mean, that, that starts with her accused killer. But talk about how the laws we have now made her more vulnerable, make the profession more dangerous. Uh, so this, in this uh, situation, we have a lot of information that can tell us very directly how criminalization played a role. So first off, this man, um, the fact that he was allowed to see sex workers and sex workers weren't warned about this is just outrageous and shows that laws that try to eliminate sex work are not actually about protecting us. Um, but this man went to a massage parlor, uh, which is criminalized, um, and he was barred from that massage parlor after he committed acts of violence against sex workers. The massage parlor was not in a position where they could call the police because calling the police would probably lead to people being arrested, to women losing their jobs, losing their income. So all they could do was bar him from their massage parlor. And then when he went to a hotel uh, with this young woman, um, it's in a context where we have programs all across the country where we're asking hotels to denounce sex workers to the police, usually under the guise of protecting us from exploitation. You know, what if we're trafficked? What if we're underage? Uh, But what this creates is a climate where sex workers need to be invisible in a hotel. So I think a lot of sex workers can relate to situations where we've been in a hotel room with someone who we're not feeling very sure about it. The situation is escalating. And we don't run out of the room screaming. We don't scream for help. We don't 
um, we wait and see if we can manage it because we know that the consequence of asking for help is probably the police getting involved and, and us getting in trouble and, and arrests happening and maybe losing our jobs, being outed as sex workers. So it's very possible that on that night, the fear of being detected by the hotel contributed um, to the ease with which this man was able to commit this violence. So it's very clear that criminalization, and this is one case, but we can talk about thousands of other situations um, of various types of violence and exploitation that sex workers are experiencing that is directly uh, related to being criminalized, to not actually having rights as workers. Um, So decriminalization wouldn't solve everything. It wouldn't overnight remove all violence, but it would go a really, really, really long way, and it would save a lot of lives. And at this point, that's the, the question that I have for everyone listening. You know, how many more of us um, do they need to see die? How many more times do we need to have the same conversations? I've been doing this for many years and having the same conversations every single time one of us dies. Um, and, you know, we, we need to stop this cycle and we need to do something. Um, and I think Canada is a country that has the potential to come up with really good laws and to listen to sex workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that point, as a, we are part of an alliance, a Canadian alliance for sex work law reform, we're a coalition of about 28 groups, mostly by and for sex workers. And we've done the work already. We sat down with lawyers, with experts, uh, and we came up with recommendations for law reform that address um, all of the concerns that we have and that the public might have about uh, decriminalization. So the information is there. It's available. That those recommendations can be put into a bill very quickly if the government is willing to move forward. Yeah. Uh, talk about the, the uh, other aspect. Now, I mentioned it in the introduction uh, when it comes to hiring security or, or bodyguards, okay. that, that our laws essentially prevent that, don't they? Uh, yes, absolutely. So current laws, um, so there are sections about procuring and about material benefit. Uh, these sections of the criminal code criminalize pretty much all third parties in the sex industry. So there is no requirement in those uh, sections of the criminal code for any type of violence, any type of exploitation, any type of coercion. Um, so anyone who helps a sex worker work is committing those offenses of procuring and or material benefit if they're making money from it. So this means that our receptionist, our driver, our security guard, all these people are considered pimps under the law. There is no distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think a lot of people don't really understand that because we hear about cases, people being charged with procuring, and there's this expectation of these people being, you know, violent offenders that are, you know, holding us hostage or anything of the sort. But the reality is that anyone who helps us, even when two sex workers are working together, if they're helping each other work, um, then they could be also charged with these same offenses. So the, the objective of the current laws is not the protection of sex workers. Mm-hmm. The objective of these laws, and this is not my interpretation, this is the preamble to the law, the uh, objective is to eliminate all sex work from Canada. And that is absurd. It's not going to happen. We're not going anywhere. Um, so we need to give up on that like complete failure of, um, of a set of laws and actually follow through with decriminalization and everything that, that goes with that. Right. And, and obviously, and you're very deliberate in saying decriminalization, because th- there is a difference between what we would refer to as decriminalization and what would be considered legalization. Right. Talk, talk mm-hmm. about the difference. 
So um, cannabis is a really good example uh, that we have recently in Canada. So cannabis was legalized, meaning that it's still a criminal offense. People can still get arrested unless they fit into the very, very narrow realm of legality that was created by the government. Um, so this works for some people. This works for, you know, people who are in the middle class, your average person, you know, this can work very well. But for anyone who's a bit more marginalized, who doesn't have access to those things, then the criminalization actually increases. So our project uh, for um, for new laws for sex workers, we need to include everyone. We need to make sure that the most vulnerable in our communities um, are actually included in this and are not targeted more. So uh, decriminalization, what it means uh, simply is removing all mentions of sex work from the criminal code um, so that when we're dealing with issues of employment, uh, those issues can be dealt with with the relevant provincial realms of law. And when we're dealing with violence, then we have all these other laws that should apply. And we have a lot of situations right now where sex workers experience violence. And if they try to go to the police, um, the police will not use all of the other sections of the criminal code and will focus only on these sex work uh, specific criminal laws. And that's completely unnecessary. Uh, there is not a single act of violence or exploitation against sex workers that can't be handled with existing things in the criminal code. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there for now, Sandra. We'll see uh, if indeed uh, that uh, decriminalization does come because uh, I think clearly you've, you've made a strong case for it. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have All a right. Good day. Uh, that is Sandra Wesley, uh, Executive Director of Stella, Montreal based organization uh, founded for and by uh, sex workers, part of the uh, co- or the Canadian Alliance for Sex Law, Sex Work Law Reform, sexworklawreform.com. a lot of debate around prescription drugs, prescription drug coverage. Uh, We complain about the cost of prescription drugs. We complain about big pharma, right? All of these issues. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we do rely on these products. Some people, in fact, rely on on pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, to to stay alive, to have quality of life. So if there's a a drug that can uh, help someone deal with a condition, uh, if there's a drug that can improve somebody's quality of life or even save somebody's life, how do we ensure that, that that can be made available, that it can be accessible as quickly as possible? Obviously, we need to make sure that what we're offering to people safe and effective. But how do we balance that with a, a need to get uh, new drugs on the market? There's an interesting uh, new report out from the Montreal Economic uh, Institute uh, that looks at how Canada does compared to other countries and how we can do a better job of this. Right? We're talking a lot about the price of drugs, a lot of talk in Ottawa about uh, national pharmacare. But maybe our goal should be to ensure that, that Canadians have access to the drugs they need in the first place, that those drugs are available in Canada. Well, joining us to talk more about this study and some of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program Peter St. Don. She's a uh, senior economist at the Montreal Economic Institute, IEDM.org is the website. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Right. And as I say, I mean, there's so much debate around right now, pharmacare, uh, you know, prescription right. drug costs, et cetera. But what, what is the issue you're highlighting here? What do people need to think about on the question of, of pharmaceutical drugs? Right. So it's counterintuitive. Um, as you say, you know, a lot of the debate uh, talks about drug prices, uh, drug costs, right? Drugs are, uh, pharmaceuticals are a rising share of medical costs. 
Uh, now, what we found in this study is that uh, what is counterintuitive about drugs is that they save about four to five times more than they cost, right? This is by something called the offset effect. So the offset effect is that when you take a drug, if that either, you know, helps your condition or if that cures you, mm -hmm. uh, either way, that is displacing uh, other treatment, right? Like right. surgery, even nursing care, things like this. So you have the cost of the drug, but then you also have uh, the savings from avoiding that other care. And so what that comes out to is about four to five times larger. So the implication is that we should be looking for more ways, right? And, and, and this is the counterintuitive part. We should be looking for more ways to use drug, uh, drugs, effectively to be spending more on drugs to the extent that that can uh, free up resources that would otherwise be going to surgery or to other kinds of treatment. Right, yeah. We, we don't often think about it in those terms, do we? We talk about the cost of prescription drugs. We're not really factoring in the, the offsetting cost, are we? That's exactly it, right? So people are taking drugs for a reason, right? Because they work. They, they, they help the condition. They, they, you know, they can ease the symptoms. Um, in many cases, they actually do, you know, render the, you know, so for example, blood pressure medication, right? So if you didn't take them, then we're talking a heart attack. What is the cost of a heart attack? Uh, just in medical costs alone, that's a big deal, right? Uh, yeah. You know, of course, setting aside the, um, uh, the impact on the patient. So, right. Where, you know, and partly this is just how the budgeting works in Canada, that there are people um, within Health Canada who are only focused on drugs, and their goal in life is to get drug costs down. And what should be happening, of course, is that, you know, if drugs are four to five times cheaper than the alternative types of treatment, then we should be looking at it from a more, you know, we sort of step back and say, no, 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 the goal here is not, it's not cheap drugs per se. The goal here is to reduce uh, health costs in general, but also, you know, to, um, to provide better care for patients. And, you know, of course, waiting times uh, is one of the biggest issues uh, in the Canadian healthcare system. And there again, right, so to the extent that you can treat a condition with a drug, uh, you know, you don't have waiting lists, right? You don't have to wait for the surgery. Uh, you can just get a, um, uh, a drug prescribed. That actually ends up taking pressure off of the rest of the healthcare system so that people can get faster surgeries. Well, and, and here's the thing, too, right? Obviously, because, um, I mean, if a drug is not safe and effective, then obviously we're right. not getting those offsetting costs. So we, we do need a process right. in place to make sure that, that the Canadians are accessing safe and effective drugs. So how do we balance, then, the need to, to get those drugs into the market, make them available, versus having, you know, the, the review process? Right. So you've got trade-offs. Um, and, you know, part of the background here is that uh, because regulators, specifically in the U.S., they've become much more uh, aggressive and strict on, uh, on pharmaceuticals, right? So it used to be that you had to prove that the drug was safe. That was, that was sort of the traditional standard. And mm -hmm. now you've got these extra layers coming on where, no, 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 we have to see if it works. Does it work well enough? Is it worth the cost? Right, so th there's all of these additional requirements that keep putting, keep uh, getting put in. Uh, now, in addition, uh, you, you know, you've, you've sort of got over, uh, general regulatory growth within the FDA. As a result, drug costs are skyrocketing. Right, so they're up to about three billion today, uh, just to develop a single drug. Uh, it, it, it can take 15 years to develop a drug. Uh, so all of those costs end up getting uh, built back into the drug. So looking at it. 
uh, from a Canadian perspective, right? The first thing, uh, I mean, obviously, right, you would want to reduce the, um, the sort of fixed costs of developing a drug. You would also want to reduce, right, today there are extra costs often if a company wants to bring a drug into Canada, right? So, you know, sort of one of the no-brainer uh, in terms of deregulation is simply to have some sort of a uh, fast-track process if a drug has already been approved uh, you know, by a regulator who, who, who we can trust, so either in the U.S. or in Europe or some jurisdiction like that, uh, that it would get reduced scrutiny because it's already been through the process. Uh, so, you know, that would uh, help bring drugs in. And then the other part kind of gets back to pharmacare and, and, and that discussion where, you know, one of the fundamental uh, problems here is that because you have this agency, the PMPRB, that is constantly pushing drug prices down without really thinking it through, just saying, well, you know, what were drug prices last year? Uh, you know, let's, let, let's just push it down. Let's push it down 2% this year. I mean, it, it's a completely arbitrary number. Um, but so what that ends up doing is sort of creating this gap, right? So in Canada, for example, average drug prices are about 30 cents on the dollar of what Americans pay. Uh, Europe is even worse because they do the same routine. They just, they just push, push prices down. Now, what that ends up doing is pharmaceutical companies, if they're going to make a return on the drug, right? So it took them $3 billion to develop that drug. Seven out of eight of, uh, you know, of drug R&D is unsuccessful. Okay. So they've got to make all that money back on this single drug, which means that if they bring it to market in the U.S. and they sell it for a dollar, they can make their money back. But if the prospect is, well, let's bring it over to Canada, we can only charge 30 cents because the PMPRB is putting pressure on us. So, you know, um, maybe we're going to lose money on it, or maybe it's going to be reimported back to the U.S. because of the price difference. Mm -hmm. You know, you put these together and you, you get the situation that we have today, uh, which is that for the average drug, there's almost a two-year delay before it's available to the Canadian market. Right, and then on top of that, you have delays of over 400 before it goes on to the uh, public plans. So in the meantime, right, you've got you know three plus years of uh, people suffering here in Canada because they can't get the latest drugs. But on top of that, because of these offset effects, you've actually got greater costs to the healthcare system. Right, so we've created a system that so dissuades pharmaceutical companies from bringing new drugs in that patients are forced to rely on surgeries or on other forms of care. And then, of course, we have waiting times and, you know, you just have this cascade of unintended consequences from this sort of singular focus on just driving down drug prices. Right. It's interesting because, as you say, we sort of have this perception of what we think drug prices ought to be. And that can lead right. to a lot of demonizing when it comes to pharmaceutical companies. Look, there's, there's a lot that goes into developing new drugs, right? So what do right. we miss when we get hung up on, on cost of drugs or, you know, pharmaceutical companies? Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. And, and that was part of what we looked at in this paper uh, was what the profitability is in pharma anyway, right? Because that's, you know, sort of a standard um, criticism of pharmaceuticals that, you know, they're making money hand over fist. There's this pill. It costs them 10 cents to make the pill and they sell it for $500. So uh, first off, pharmaceutical has about a 15% um, profit rate in the U.S. And that compares to other industries of 10%. All right, so yes, there's an extra nickel of profit that goes into the pharmaceutical dollar. Now, keep in mind, that's lower than other industries like video games, 
Okay, and in other words, games that are kind of risky, like video games or like pharmaceuticals, those industries tend to require a little bit higher rate of return because there's risk to it. So anyway, pharma does make uh, an extra nickel, but the most dramatic difference with pharma is that pharma puts about 20 cents on the dollar into R&D, right? Other industries, uh, again, throughout the U.S., the average is three cents, right? So 17, mm-hmm. so, so the vast majority of that uh, of that extra money uh, is going into R&D. Now, what does all that buy? So, you know, uh, we were talking just earlier there that, you know, the average new drug uh, is up to about $3 billion, and only one out of eight of them goes to market, right? So if we go back to that, you know, 10-cent pill costing $500, the problem here is that if the company is putting $3 billion each on a bunch of bets, hoping that this is going to cure some disease, you know, or it's going to give patients a better quality of life. So they put $3 billion on each of these, and seven of those don't work out. Uh, how, uh, so they have to cover all of those failed bets. I mean, you know, clearly they're doing their best, right? They have an incentive um, to make good products. They have an incentive to produce something that works. But uh, pharmaceutical R&D is very difficult, right? So uh, all of those failed products have to be covered by the one drug that did actually go to the market. And even just the $3 billion that the drug itself cost, you know, you've got seven times however many billion on the failed bets. So that one single drug has got to cover all of the R&D. So now if it's a condition that doesn't affect that many people, right, so maybe you've got 1,000 people a year who need this drug, well, somehow you've got to make back, you know, seven, ten billion. Yeah. Uh, the drug has to be expensive and uh, just to cover the R&D. The alternative is that they will not do R&D. They will make shampoos or something like this instead. Right. So, I mean, unintended consequences, I, I think, is, is kind That's of the takeaway it. here, right? Absolutely. Yep. 100%. Yeah. Well, people can read the study. Uh, it's online, as mentioned, IEDM.org, the Montreal Economic Institute. Peter, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. All right. There you go. Uh, Peter St. Ange, he's a uh, senior economist with the Montreal Economic Institute, uh, author of this study today uh, on pharmaceuticals uh, and the benefits they say that can pay for themselves. Right. The, uh, the, the costs avoided in the healthcare system when people aren't needing treatment, surgery, et cetera. And some different perspective than what goes into developing new drugs and something we should keep in mind as we develop policy around all of this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.